Hello and welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum podcast. My name is Tane Danger and I'm director of the forum. This is a special program that we recorded at the Minnesota State Fair with author Samuel G. Friedman. His new book is called Into the Bright Sunshine, A Young Hubert Humphrey and the Fight for Civil Rights. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome to the Town Hall Forum podcast. We are normally a program based out of Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis, Minnesota. Our mission is to present voices of conscience addressing the issues of the day from an ethical perspective. All our programs are free in person as a live stream and as a podcast. You can learn more about us and see the things that we've got coming up, as well as listening back to more than 40 years of archived programs at our website, westminsterforum.org. Without further ado, let's go to my conversation with Samuel Friedman at the Minnesota State Fair. We talked about Hubert Humphrey and the fight for civil rights. Welcome, everyone. So excited to have you all here. Thank you all for coming out to the Minnesota State Fair and to this. This is the first ever time that we are doing this. This is the Westminster Town Hall Forum pop-up at the Minnesota Public Radio booth here at the Minnesota State Fair. Yeah, that's very cool. Samuel G. Friedman is an award-winning author, columnist, and professor. He's a former columnist for the New York Times and a professor at Columbia University. He is the author of 10 books, but the, I know, that is an awe moment. That's impressive. But the most recent, and the one that we are here to talk about today, is Into the Bright Sunshine, Young Hubert Humphrey and the Fight for Civil Rights. I am so excited because this is a really fantastic book, and as somebody who has uh, made a life here in Minnesota, I have a, a soft spot in my heart for Hubert Humphrey. Please, everyone, a big round of applause to welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Samuel Friedman. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so I, I want to get into the chronology and tell some of the story, but maybe just to set the table a bit, can you talk about what, you've written 10 books about a batch of different pieces in history. What made you want to do this one about Hubert Humphrey? What brought you to uh, our, our former vice president? It was something of a circuitous route, but it ended up with this perfect moment that set the book into motion. I've been looking for a long time for a book to do about the period in American history right after World War II, because I felt that there were deservedly a lot of books about the war itself. There were a lot of books about the 1950s, about the creation of suburbia, about the civil rights movement starting in the 50s, about the Cold War. But it felt to me like there was this gap, like we didn't just go from you know, VE Day and VJ Day to suddenly everyone's in the suburbs mowing their lawn. And I just couldn't find the right subject for a while. And just propitiously or providentially, in early 2015, my wife, who I should say is a good Minneapolitan, lived here for about 25 years, raised her kids there. We still live part of the year here and have plenty of family on her side in town. But she and I went to hear our friend Julian Zelizer, who's a historian of Congress, give a talk about a book he just written about how Lyndon Johnson pushed through the Great Society legislation in the mid-60s, these laws that were kind of a continuation of the New Deal's social safety net. And when Julian was done and it was Q&A time, my wife, Chris, being a good Minnesotan, asked Julian, what about Hubert Humphrey? Where was he in all this? And in the course of answering, Julian mentioned Hubert Humphrey's civil rights speech at the 1948 Democratic Convention, and that it was this underappreciated landmark in civil rights history. And I knew about the speech, and I knew its place in history, but something about hearing Julian say it really made the light bulb go off for me. And it was in that period of time I'd been wanting to explore. So I immediately knew that's what I wanted to do next. And then 
The next day, I did two things. I emailed Julian to make sure he wasn't going to do the book. And he was like, mm -hmm. oh, no, I'm doing something about Newt Gingrich and Jim Wright. Don't worry. It's all yours if you want it. And little pro tip, I do things what authors with book ideas always do before they really embark. Looked at Amazon to make sure no similar book was out there. Looked at the Library of Congress's online catalog to make sure nothing was out there. And actually, there was a gigantic gap about anything, not only about Humphrey, but really connecting to civil rights in that whole period of time. So then it was full speed ahead um, eight and a half years ago. Do you have a sense why there, there is that gap or why there was that gap? That's a great question, Tane, and it goes to two of the main reasons I did want to write the book. One is that you're sort of a false positive when it comes to knowledge about Hubert Humphrey, because this is his city or his twin cities, this is his state, I mean, how perfect to be at the fair, one of the places where he would do his beloved retail politicking. But if you go around the country, those who remember Humphrey remember only the latter part of his career when he was really disgraced because of his support for the Vietnam War, because he got the Democratic nomination in 1968 amid the police riot against anti-war demonstrators and journalists. I don't think so much because he lost to Nixon, but because he then looked like the establishment candidate running for the Democratic nomination against George McGovern. And he just was a really disparaged and often mocked figure then. And I felt that there was such a gap that most people who bought into that as the enduring image of Humphrey had no idea of the courage and bravery and moral vision of this man. Um, for much of his political career prior to Vietnam. It's as if people remembered the sense of, oh, he betrayed liberalism, but they didn't remember why they felt so betrayed, what he had done that was so valiant. Mm. And so I wanted to fill that gap. And the other reason is that I felt there was a gap in writing about the civil rights movement, that um, a lot of the great literature of it starts in the mid-50s with Brown versus Board of Ed declaring school segregation unconstitutional, and Rosa Parks and Dr. King and the Montgomery bus boycott. And those, of course, are epically important events, but they didn't spring from nowhere. And there was this decade of hugely important civil rights activity in the 40s, a lot of it very tied to World War II and to the idea of a global battle against fascism. And that material had been far less dealt with by historians. So, again, I felt there were these two gaps that I was in a position to fill. So, let's, I, I imagine there's a lot of people in the audience who know a little bit of this story, but just to help us kind of walk through it, let, let's do some of the chronology. Yeah. So, uh, Hubert Humphrey grows up, actually, in South Dakota, which, uh, can you talk a little bit about that growing up and what pieces, if any started to put him on this path towards the civil rights champion that you write about. I'm going to answer that in one second. I'm going to roll back to something I should have said at the start, which is I'm so thrilled to be here. As a kid from New Jersey who was an intern on the Minneapolis Star in 1977, where my duties included taking dictation from Jim Klobuchar when he was out on the jaunt with Jim bike trips, and, oh, wow. and I'd be there on the Saturday morning shift you know, you couldn't send your stories in by email back then. So Jim would call them in from some phone booth like down in the bluffs along the, you know, Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota border at 6.30 on a Saturday morning for that afternoon's paper. And I would take dictation. And I had friends from the newsroom who brought me to the fair that summer, which blew me away. Because in New Jersey, our state fair, I think, was held at the parking lot of Giants Stadium in some years. I'm not kidding. When I'll, is the autobiography of Samuel Friedman coming out where we can get these stories? Like, uh, <laughs> I wrote some autobiographical material in a book for young journalists, but not that particular story. It was an amazing summer I had in Minneapolis. I've often thought about writing about that summer. But also, look, I'm a longtime dues-paying member of NPR, you should know, so I'm glad to be here. And I've heard so much about the legend of uh, the Westminster Forum and really, this was one of the speaking opportunities I most yearned for, so thank you. We're so happy to have you. Yeah. Um, so back to Humphrey yeah. now. Um, so Humphrey, in a way, is the least likely person demographically to become a champion of the rights of black Americans and also 
very extensively Jewish Americans, because he grew, grows up in this very vanilla place. He grows up in a town of 500, Dolan, South Dakota, which you'll know some of the um, geography, so it's good to talk to the home crowd. You know, you just take, high, take Highway 212 out and out and out and out, and, you know, um, eventually you hit Doland about maybe 70 or 80 miles past the South Dakota border. And when he was growing up there, it was almost entirely Protestants of uh, Scandinavian, German, and British Isles extraction. There was one Jewish family in town. There was a small community of black people who worked for the railroad at a switching yard in Huron, 40 miles away, which might as well have been half a day's travel away. And what passed for a minority were these French-Canadian Catholics in a town called Turton, about 10 miles away. And they were so reviled that the Ku Klux Klan would periodically burn crosses on the outskirts of their town. So it's really unlikely that, you know, that Humphrey would care so much about these issues, except there are a couple of things even in childhood that if I can go on, oh, yeah. that really set him on the path. One is that his father, H.H., is a really unique person um, in, in Dolan. And I want to say, first of all, that part of doing the biography of Hubert Humphrey was to realize that his generosity of spirit meant that sometimes his accounts of the people he loved could be a little bit too sunny. Um, and his adoring portrait of his father is half true. His father was a little bit of an operator and on the borderline of it at times being a con man. Like he sold patent medicines and had all these schemes like I'm going to get rich selling opera records to the farmers in South Dakota. That didn't turn out so well. But the part of H.H. that Hubert was right about is that he was a free thinker. He was a liberal Democrat in a place where conservative republicanism was the political norm. He even was as bold as to support Al Smith, the first Catholic to run for president, and loved Woodrow Wilson. And, and there, there's a part, I'll just say, one of my favorite anecdotes is that he would read uh, the Cross of Gold speech to the family right. uh, tw twice every year. He would gather yes. the family. Uh, and read William Jennings Bryant's speech to the family the way that you might read, like, The Night Before Christmas or something. Exactly, exactly. And, um, and he really, H.H. takes the best parts of prairie populism, his commitment to economic equality, and he's able to sort of steer away from some of the nativism and some of the more problematic sides. But that's really the beginning of what makes Hubert Humphrey the person we knew. The other... Um, <clears throat> The second thing that happens is that people in most of this country think the depression begins with the stock market crash in 29, and then the cascade of bank failures, and then the dust storms and the agricultural crisis. But in the Dakotas, and if any of you had family who lived there, you've heard this, the depression hit there a decade earlier. There was a catastrophic drop in um, wheat prices after World War One, and it came right at the same time as there was a plague of this wheat disease called stem rust. There were plagues of jackrabbits. It was almost like this biblical set of plagues. And it meant that there was suddenly mass poverty in the agriculture belt of uh, e the eastern Dakotas. And that meant that all the customers of Hubert Humphrey's dad's drugstore couldn't afford to pay him. Some of them were paying him by giving him animals. A lot of them he just gave credit to. But the local banks failed, farmers were being dispossessed, and the Humphrey family lost their beautiful home, mm. moved into a crummy little rental home. This was in 1922, and a few years later lost their drugstore. And the lesson young Hubert took from this was that failure isn't about making bad personal choices. I mean, whatever part a bad personal choice may play, that there are these much larger forces like drought, like crop prices, like you know, plant diseases, like animal infestation, that no individual can stand up to, no matter how great their personal values are. And he realized you needed activist government to even the scales. So in a way, Hubert Humphrey became a new dealer before there was a new deal in the 1920s. And then the last thing that happens, and this is just kind of this almost mythological moment to me, is when Humphrey's 11, Route 212 is being put in through Doland 
it, they're graveling the road. There's never been a gravel highway before. And the crew that comes up from Omaha, Nebraska to spread the gravel is a black-owned company. And these are the first black people who've probably ever been to Doland, and certainly the first ones Humphreys ever heard about. And he's so curious, and all respect to HH, he's so open-minded and curious, he goes out to meet these road crew people, and he befriends them, and they befriend him. And he remembers this decades later when he's dictating it for his autobiography. And I actually found the names of these people, Otis and Leslie Shipman. Um, and I don't think that befriending a group of black road workers when you're 11 dictates your life. It doesn't mean you're going to become a civil rights crusader, but it tells you something essential, just like what he went through with his families and his town's plunge into poverty tells you something essential. So <clears throat> he grows up in South Dakota, uh, and then he comes to Minneapolis to go to college, to go to the University of Minnesota. And I want to come back to Humphrey in a moment, but maybe we could take a moment to just sort of talk about Minneapolis at this time, late 1920s, early 1930s. You, you have a, a lot of history in here that some folks might know, but I, I think it's worth sort of like painting the picture of, we might have an image of Minneapolis blue, like, progressive place in the northern part of the country. And yet there was a lot of ugly stuff happening at this time in, you know, yeah. progressive Minneapolis. That's very true. I mean, the image of blue Minneapolis now is belied by this. And even a lot of Minneapolis' sense of itself at the time with the Farmer Labor Party and, you know, the epic um, an ultimately successful strike by the Teamsters drivers in the mid-1930s has given the sense that this has always been a liberal city. But unfortunately, the fact is that Minneapolis, really from the turn of the 20th century up until Humphrey really takes this on as mayor in 1945, is a city with a terrible entrenched problem of racism, anti-Semitism, anti-Catholic feeling, anti-Japanese-American feeling, anti-Indigenous, and it's expressed throughout all the elements of the city. Um, it's not just that ignorant people flock to, you know, the Ku Klux Klan, for instance. It's that you, for instance, a, a pro-Nazi group called the Silver Shirts, who were very active in Minneapolis in the 1930s. They actually modeled themselves on Hitler's brown shirts. And when they have meetings, the people who are going to it include the president of the Board of Ed, the president of the Major Businessmen's Association, the Citizens Alliance, doctors, dentists, the most powerful minister in town, William Bell Riley at First Baptist um, on Hennepin Avenue, who's erudite and beautifully attired and you know, flex his sermons with references to Shakespeare and George Bernard Shaw and Plato. He firmly believes in this notorious forgery, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, that purports to show how Jews are trying to take over the world. And he preaches about it repeatedly. And this puts a, an establishment um, okay on these kinds of sentiments. And the black population in Minneapolis is repeatedly told, you should be glad you're here. They're told this even by the liberals. They're told this by the farmer labor people that, hey, we don't lynch you here. You can work here. So what are you complaining about? Why can't you just be happy living on the north side? Why can't you just be content with your jobs working in the hotels as busboys and porters or working as domestics for white families in affluent neighborhoods, you know? And that had been very much the norm of the city um, when, when Humphrey got here. And it, although there were valiant people trying to, as we would say now, call BS on those attitudes at that time, they hadn't been effectively challenged. Well, and there's a really key piece, again, also, we were talking a little before this, and you alluded to it, that uh, sometimes these histories can be presented as, well, civil rights movement started in 1955 or 1960 or something. There were uh, black leaders in even a place like Minneapolis that had a relatively small black population compared to a Kansas City or a Chicago or places like that. But there were people, you, you spend a lot of time with Cecil B. Newman in the book and uh, others, and I'm wondering if you can just talk about 
that uh, sort of what was happening in that community at this time and how that was already growing. It, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were incredibly bold people who were trying to fight the, the bigotries um, in the city. And I really actually wanted to give a lot of attention to them in the book because I certainly wanted to address Humphrey's life and really do my part to give a fairer account of his whole career. But I didn't want the book just to be Hubert Humphrey hero, Hubert Humphrey white savior. He was a great ally, to use another current term. He was a great partner of other activists. And many of those had been doing this lonely, difficult work before he got to town. Um, Cecil Newman was a Pullman porter who took the money he made working on the trains to found the Minneapolis Spokesman, which as a lot of us know, is still published today. And in fact, his granddaughter, Tracy Williams Dillard, is the publisher and editor to this day. And he had used the pages of the spokesman to try to call attention to all sorts of forms of racial prejudice in the city, prejudice on the part of labor unions that wouldn't have black members, prejudice on the part of big employers who wouldn't take on black employees, except in very servile roles, police brutality, the kind of code language that the newspapers would use to write about black life, which put all the emphasis on crime and nothing else. And Newman was joined by people like Lena Olive-Smith, who was an incredible um, civil rights lawyer, I think the first black woman to get a law degree in the state of Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And so these people were out there, and then in the Jewish community, you had people like Sam Shiner, who's an amazing guy. He was a lawyer who no law firms would hire because he was Jewish and who for a long time was making his living as a jazz musician. Mm. And um, only because you had the Jewish community here frightened out of its wits by all these pro-Nazi silver shirts rallies, they pulled together enough money to get, get a salary for Sam Shiner to be kind of this one-man anti-defamation league. So, uh so Humphrey comes from South Dakota, comes to the University of Minnesota. He has a few bumps kind of along the way of getting uh, his, uh, his education here. Um, but in the interest of time, can you help us understand how does, how does somebody from South Dakota comes here to go to school basically decide, I want to get into the politics here and then ends up being successful at it at a very relatively young age to run for mayor. Yeah, I mean, Hubert Humphrey should be like the patron saint of late bloomers um, because he had to drop out for five years in the middle of his uh, undergrad years at the U to help his family start up a new drugstore. Now they'd moved to Huron, South Dakota. And if not for his girlfriend, then wife Muriel, urging him to come back to school, I think he would have ended up spending his life as a pharmacist out there working in local politics. And when he finally comes back here in the late 30s and hurries up to make up for lost time, he does get exposed to some great new dealers here on the faculty, Evron Kirkpatrick and Benjamin Lippincott, and he meets Orr Freeman and Art Naftalin, people who are gonna be hugely important in his later political life. But he's a standard issue new dealer. The thing that really transforms him into the man we know and the hero of the civil rights movement in, in the 40s and beyond, is he goes to grad school at, of all places, Louisiana State in Baton Rouge. He goes for one reason. They have 400 bucks for a graduate assistantship, and he and Muriel are married. They've just had their first child, Nancy. They need that 400 bucks. Um, and so they go to Baton Rouge, and three things happen there that are so important to Humphrey. Number one, he lives in a Jim Crow society for the first time. He sees what American apartheid means in a very granular level, and it appalls him. It just offends his decency. Number two, he makes Jewish friends for the first time. There's a friend of his on the debate team at LSU, Alvin Rubin, who will later become a federal judge, who, among other things, tells Humphrey about his five uncles who were all trapped in the Nazi-controlled portion of Poland, and all of whom will die in the Holocaust. And that's the beginning at a time when America is very isolationist and anti-intervention of Humphrey realizing what's at stake in opposing Nazi Germany. And along those same lines, Humphrey studies that whole year at LSU, 1939-40 academic year, with this remarkable man named Rudolf Eberly, who is a one-eighth Jewish anti-Nazi professor who had been studying in Germany, 
how was it a democratic, tolerant country could, in the space of two or three or four years, embrace dictatorship? And because of that work and because of his Jewish ancestry, even though his family had long ago converted to Christianity, but of course that didn't matter to the Nazis, he's kicked out of Germany, he's stripped of his jobs, his savings are seized, and he ends up penniless with his family in America looking for a place to work, which ends up being LSU. And when Humphrey studies with him, Eberly does three things. Number one, he talks about the research he did in the rise of the Nazis, which was actually later published. Number two, he talks about his family's experience of dislocation and being refugees. And number three, he draws a direct parallel between the way the Nazis treated the Jews in Germany and the Jim Crow system and the way it treated blacks in America. And that's what Humphrey brings with him when he comes to Minneapolis in 1940, in theory, to do work towards his doctoral degree in poli-sci at the U, but in fact, to very quickly become part of public life. Um, and so th these are all really valuable lessons. I think one of the pieces that's so interesting to me about Humphrey is, it, again, there were other people talking about these things, uh, you know, thinking about them, promoting them on campuses and in college classes. Humphrey sees the opportunity or thinks about like, okay, and how do we actually translate this into politics, right? Like, how do we make this work? It's really a, an important point. You know, when I talk about this amazing alliance that's really personified by Sam Shiner, Cecil Newman, and Hubert Humphrey, they each bring something to the table. Sam Shiner and Cecil Newman can continue Humphrey's education in American prejudice by telling him firsthand what has happened in Minneapolis, what the situation is here for blacks and Jews. Humphrey learns from them, but Humphrey has political ambitions and political skills that no one who Newman and Shiner had ever dealt with before had. He was someone who, against all the electoral logic, thought you could actually run for mayor and win for mayor, championing the rights of two populations blacks and Jews who collectively were like 3% of the population of the city, right? I mean, like, how idiotic is that as practical politics? You're not going to win on those votes. And it's interesting. Humphrey runs for mayor the first time in 1943, and he runs a more conventional campaign. He's running on good government. He's running against the crime downtown, a good deal of which is the, is the project, uh, a product of Jewish gangsters, by the way. He's emphasizing his Scandinavian background, which does make a lot of electoral sense here. And he's a young, exciting candidate, and he almost beats the incumbent, Marvin Klein. Two years later, Humphrey runs specifically as a candidate of civil rights and human rights. And I think one reason it succeeded is that he's running in the last months of World War II. He's running at a time when at the movie theaters downtown, people are seeing newsreels of the death camps. People are picking up the Star Journal and the Tribune and reading articles written by American journalists about the, the concentration camps. This news is being absorbed, but kind of shockingly, up on the north side, there's a whole wave of attacks um, by Protestant gangs against Jewish teenagers and kids against the backdrop of the revelation of the Holocaust. These kids are being, their cars are being, you know, pushed off the road by other cars. They're being thrown through plate glass windows. They're being beat up. They're having knives pulled on them. And at one point, there's actually this mass meeting at Lincoln Middle School up on the north side, 2,000 people. And a rabbi says, is this what our boys have been dying for? in the fight against fascism for this to happen at home. And the mayor, Marvin Klein, and his police chief just poo-poo it and say, this is just, you know, teenage hooligans. Humphrey enters into that debate, into that public discussion, and says, this was the predictable outcome of not paying attention to the Jew hatred that's been here all along. You were warned it would get violent, and now it's become violent. And, and there are comparable incidents involving the black community, particular one involving police brutality that happens a couple of months after Humphrey's elected in which he personally intercedes. But still, why would this win a majority of voters? Yeah. I think part of it is that you have a lot of GIs who've come back from the war 
They're back to their families in Minneapolis. They're living in Quonset huts with their wives, going to the U on the GI Bill. And I think they came back from the war with this idea of we defeated fascism abroad. There's an unfinished agenda at home, too. Mm -hmm. And I think Humphrey spoke to that. And he also, politics aside, was an indefatigable campaigner. And I've been around politics enough to know you can't fake it. You can't fake loving retail politics. And he loved it. And he loved going out and giving three or four speeches a night. And he remembered everybody's name. And Marvin Klein was complacent and thought he was going to be reelected. And on top of everything else, Humphrey just outworked him. Um, Humphrey becomes mayor, ends up serving two terms. Yes. And at that time, up until very recently, uh, Minneapolis had a weak mayor system, as we said. Most of the power rests with the city council. So what is he actually able to do in terms of policy, and how is he able to do it with those constraints? You're exactly right. I mean, really, the weak mayor system has pretty much gone very close to the present, but at that time, what it meant, as you said, Tane, is the city council makes all the major decisions. They control the budget. They control most of the appointments. About the only thing the mayor can do is appoint the police chief. And one thing Humphrey does do that's really important is hire a terrific police chief, a guy named Ed Ryan, who had been trained by the FBI. And, but Humphrey knows that that alone in a weak mayor system can't put through his agenda, which includes he wants to have a fair employment law passed. He wants to get laws against restrictive covenants, that is, covenants against selling a home to blacks or Jews or native people or Nisei Japanese or Catholics. He wants um, to accomplish these things but he, he wants to reform the police force for reasons that unfortunately echo right up to the present with George Floyd's murder. But he knows he can't just get it through the council and he can't do it by diktat. He has to make public opinion change so that public opinion will get the city council members to change. And he's brilliant at that. He does a couple of things. He raises private money to create what he calls citizens committees. These are volunteers. One committee is about police reform. The other is about civil rights and human rights. And Humphrey was a great coalition builder. So Humphrey gets on these committees people from labor and people from big business, Republicans, Democrats, farmer labor people, blacks, whites, Jews, Protestants, Catholics, um, men and women, people who would disagree on countless other issues. But if they agree with him on police reform in the one case and on civil and human rights on the other, he wants them to work together, and they do. The other thing he does is kind of astonishingly bold, is he asks a sociologist from the historically black college, Nash, um, Fisk University in Nashville, which would later educate John Lewis and Diane Nash of the civil rights movement. This fellow Charles Johnson is invited to Minneapolis to come and do it a community self-survey. And this involves getting volunteers from Minneapolis to go door to door and business to business and church to church and school to school and compile what we would now call a database which proves the extent of different forms of prejudice in Minneapolis and also generates a lot of anecdotal examples of it. And Humphrey uses that, um, uses that database and those anecdotes to appeal to the public and say, we have a problem. We've got to change this. And that leverage allows him to get his legislative agenda through the council. And I, I, just to draw a note under that, these, were, these weren't sort of like laws and bills that were being sort of like, oh, you know, like seven other cities had already done this or this was part of some... These, these were pretty like cutting edge things at the time that ended up actually becoming the template for national thing. You're right. This is absolutely cutting edge. Like when Humphrey took on the restrictive covenants in housing, the only th reason he didn't uh, end up being the national leader on that is that a Supreme Court case that came out of St. Louis got decided right about the same time, and the court declared covenants unconstitutional. But on fair employment, Humphrey had the, one of the earliest and definitely the strongest law in the country. And it took the United States as a nation 20 years to catch up to it. It was only when Johnson was president and Humphrey was vice president that we created the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which really was nothing but a national version of what Hubert Humphrey had done in Minneapolis 
in the 1940s. And Humphrey changed Minneapolis's entire image from this national image of being notorious for you know, discrimination to a national image of being a great leader in civil rights and human rights. And I just want to add one more thing. As you said, every other city wasn't doing this. And stances that may, through the lens of 2023, seem like, oh, no big deal, fair employment law, that's, you know, who would feel like that was so bold? But I want to tell you, it was way out there to do it at that time. And Hubert Humphrey, I think most of you don't know this, almost paid with his life for it. Mm -hmm. One morning in February 1947, Humphrey's coming home, or late one night, it's just before midnight, to his home right near the U on 19th, um, off of Como, and he is dropped off after a typical night of speaking at a couple of rubber chicken circuit dinners and so forth, and his police car that always takes him home drops him off at the curb, and he's walking to the front door. And weirdly, the street light closest to his house has been knocked out. And so in the dark, he's fumbling around for his key at the front door, and three bullets whiz by his head. And just then Muriel gets the door open and hustles him inside. And when they're trying to figure out like what just happened, um, Muriel says, you know, our dog barked just before, just when you were at the door. And then they theorize that maybe their pet dog Tippy's barks had unnerved the shooter just enough that he missed. And Humphrey, in a way that would not be possible now, conspired to keep this out of the newspapers for six weeks. But the next morning, his son Skip recalled this, and I entered, the next morning Skip comes down for school, and there's um, a police officer sitting in the living room with a sawed-off shotgun laid across his lap to protect Humphrey. And ultimately, they figured out that the person who had almost certainly taken the shots at him and had also been putting up anti-Semitic and racist placards at the U and outside some of the liberal churches around town, was a follower of the notorious America Firster, Gerald L.K. Smith, mm. a, a guy named Maynard Orlando Nelson. And when they arrested him, they found guns, knives, brass knuckles, pro right-wing propaganda, placards of the sort he'd been putting up by the U. So it was, as I write in the book, the terrorist's toolkit. And that's who almost killed Humphrey. And for reasons I don't know for sure, Humphrey didn't take the case to court. What I think is that he didn't want to give Nelson the pulpit of a mm. trial and let him play the martyr. And I think he also hoped hum that Nelson would leave town because he was brought up on other charges. And well, Nelson did leave. And as I know from reading his FBI file, he ended up part of the American Nazi party in Chicago. Mm. But that's the boldness of Hubert Humphrey, you know, to risk his life. And some people after that would have said, I better not be out there the same way. But Humphrey only was more and more daring. Uh, I, I promised that we were going to open it up for questions, so I'm going to do that. But I can't finish this part of this interview without getting to this, the famous Democratic National Convention speech, which you alluded to this and in even talking to folks that we were going to talk about this. I've talked to civil rights folks today who say, yeah, that speech, really, we don't think enough about how that speech changed things. So uh, I'm going to just ask you two questions to sort of set this up. Can you sort of talk about why that speech was as, uh, had the import and impact that it did? And then two, I'll just tee up, Humphrey gives that speech while he was mayor, 30-something-year-old mayor of Minneapolis. Right. And so there's a part of the question that's like, well, where does Humphrey get off mm -hmm. like thinking that he's like the guy who's going to get in front of the national audience and do this? You're totally right. I'll, I'll, we, the answer to one is the answer to the other, so it weaves together very nicely. First of all, just to set the scene, in 1948, the Democrats came together knowing that they were going to nominate Harry Truman. Almost everyone expected he was going to lose, even in the Democratic Party. The big issue was not who was going to be nominated. The issue was whether the party would endorse civil rights. Even under FDR, the Democrats had never done it, because FDR had calculated that he needed the votes of the Southern segregationist wing of the party in order to win election, in order to get his program of the New Deal through Congress. And so he would never have language endorsing civil rights in the party platform 
And he also, by the way, allowed New Deal programs to be implemented locally. So in the South, they were implemented in a very racially unequal Jim Crow way. And Harry Truman, at points, started to move forward quite bravely on civil rights. But then he kind of looks at the calendar and, oh, there's November 1948, and I have to run for election. I'm going to do the FDR playbook, which means kick the can of civil rights down the road, placate the segregationists. And Humphrey and a group of insurgents in the party have no tolerance for that, and they want to make a fight over civil rights at the convention. And so you've got Harry Truman, who's told his people at the convention, no way do I want the civil rights plank, I want vague language like FDR always had. You have the southern segregationists saying, if there's, if there's one word about civil rights in this platform, we're going to leave, we're going to run a protest candidate, and we're going to make Harry Truman lose. And then you have the great black labor and civil rights leader, A. Philip Randolph, literally leading protest march outside the convention hall, urging black young men not to register for the draft or serve in the military until Harry Truman desegregates the armed forces, which amazingly, after we've defeated the racial and religious supremacy of the Nazis and in a different way, the Imperial Japanese, our own military is still segregated. So that's a big civil rights issue. So Humphrey walks into this with this group of insurgents who are going to fight this battle. And as you say, Tane, he's, nationally speaking, a, a kid. He's 37. He's been mayor of a mid-sized city for three years. Truman's people at the convention tell Humphrey, in so many words, if you give that speech, your career is over. At a committee hearing, he's called a pipsqueak. Yeah. Truman is writing his, his diary about the civil rights insurgents at the convention saying that they're crackpots. And of course, there's the threat of the Southern walkout. And Humphrey is a human being. He can't help but feel some trepidation about this. He, but he is, he's on a mission, and he's going to fulfill it. But what he really doesn't know is if it's going to be a suicide mission for his entire career. And yet, on July 14th of 1948, he gives this speech, and it's a brilliant speech partly because under convention rules, he only had 10 minutes. Now, we all know Humphrey's proclivity for talking way too long. And at one point, Muriel said to him, after one of those speeches, he said, Hubert, a speech need not be eternal to be immortal. Um, it's always good to have a wife who, you know, who call you on your stuff, right? Um, anyway, Humphrey has to edit himself because he's got 10 minutes. And within these 10 minutes, he talks about the moral cause of civil rights. He talks about in the Cold War that the United States can't look like the country of segregation and let the Soviet Union look like the country of racial equality. Um, another name some of you will remember from Minnesota political history, Eugenie Anderson, who's a young activist in the DFL then, gave Humphrey, who wrote 95% of the speech himself, but she gives him a really important sentence that basically commends Harry Truman and says, we're just basically endorsing Harry Truman's own program, which is pretty much true. And Humphrey also lays out the specifics. This isn't vague civil rights language. This is specific. Desegregate the military. Pass an anti-lynching law, which of course this country didn't get around to for another 65 years. Um, outlaw the poll tax. And all of these measures are also explicitly extended, not only on the, on the basis of racial identity, but religion and national origin. So this plank is hugely important to Catholics and Jews and Nisai Japanese and Mexican Americans as well. And the incredible thing is that Humphrey is so eloquent in the speech that he wins the vote that over and against Truman's wishes, over and against the Southern walkout, which indeed happens, the Democratic Party endorses civil rights. And that's why this, um, this moment is, is so important in the civil rights struggle. I, I'll just quickly note a few things because I know we want to get to questions. This is when the Democratic Party becomes the party we know now, an inclusive interracial interfaith party. This is when the segregationist wing of the Democrats begins to move towards the Republican Party, where it has resided since uh, the, the mid-60s and more than ever now. This is what leads Harry Truman 
to two weeks after the convention, desegregate the army and desegregate the federal workforce. This is why he beats Tom Dewey, because there's a surge of black voters in swing states that give him his electoral vote margin. And this is the experiment the Democratic Party runs that shows you can win without the solid South. And that is what gives Lyndon Johnson and Hubert Humphrey the confidence to push in the mid-60s for the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, the Fair Housing Act of 66. That's the fulfillment of the promises of 1948. Uh, that is a very good note for us to open it up. Oh, yeah, please, a round of applause. Yeah, that is fantastic. Um, Thank you. So Thank you. Uh, we're going to open it up for questions of the audience. What's your name and what's your question? My name is Bob Allwilling. been with MPR for 40 years. Um, could you talk about how that group of phenomenal leadership formed at the University of Minnesota, and did they coalesce around Humphrey? Um, yeah, I think you're talking about the people like um, Orv Freeman and Arthur Naftalin, who were people Humphrey met as, an under, as undergrads, and also people like Jerry Joseph and uh, Don and Arvon Frazier were also all part of that uh, scene. Some of them were on the Minnesota Daily, like Arvon Frazier and Jerry Joseph. Some of them were in the political science department and were very inspired by Evron Kirkpatrick um, and Ben Lippincott, who were two professors of political science who were really um, enthusiastic New Dealers. And both of them were also really interested in being public intellectuals. They didn't think that the life of a professor was just about being in the academy. They wanted to do educational programs for the whole community, and they wanted to make their knowledge available to people in the public sector of the government. And so I think that was part of the inspiration for all of these people who, as we know, went on to become mayors and members of Congress and um, ag secretary and governor and all sorts of positions. But you're quite right. There was kind of this exciting moment in time in the late 30s at the U. And part of the question was, were they also coalescing around Humphrey, or when did they get excited about Humphrey? I, don't, I think that they were peers of Humphrey's in the late 30s. I don't think he was to them the obvious leader. In fact, Art Naftlin tells this funny story about the first time he ever sees Humphrey. Humphrey is like standing in on the front steps of whatever the poli-sci department's building was, giving an impromptu speech that's going on and on. And Naftlin recalls thinking to himself, who is this nut? Is there something mentally ill with this person? I'm not kidding. Um, so actually, initially, it wasn't like Humphrey was the obvious leader. I think they were all really active, um, really active together. And it's only after Humphrey gets back from LSU and he gets this job doing first worker education for the WPA and then war mobilization, baby, basically morale building speeches on the home front that he begins to get really well known and he has a public visibility that's at that point greater than Naftalin's, greater than Freeman's, you know, greater than, you know, Don or Arvon Fraser or Jerry Joseph, so. Okay, other questions? So uh, one of the striking images that I've heard about through the years about the 48 convention is the Southern Dixiecrats who were so upset with Humphrey's speech storming out. And I'm curious, in the years after that convention, did Humphrey ever have any interactions with these people? And, and what can sure. you tell us? Well, first of all, you're, you're right. What actually happened is Humphrey gives his speech. And if you listen to the audio on YouTube, you can hear all the booing. There are cheers, but there's a lot of booing. And things got so tumultuous in the convention hall that Sam Rayburn, who was Speaker of the House, was running the convention, gaveled it to a halt and insisted that there would be like an hour-long break so we could try to get things back in order again. So the vote on Humphrey's plank didn't actually happen till they reconvened about an hour later. And then once it passes, the Dixiecrats just flip their you-know-what. And they storm out. And by the way, who's the leader of storming out, among other people? Bull Connor, the one who will later turn the police dogs and fire hoses on the civil rights marchers in Birmingham. And they leave, Humphrey wins, but to your question, and Robert Carroll writes movingly about this in some of his Johnson books, 
those Southern segregationists just did everything they could to belittle and humiliate Humphrey once he was in the Senate, because it especially drove him, them crazy. Humphrey gets to the Senate, he immediately hires a black staff aide, the first staff aide ever hired by a senator. He brings that staff aide to eat with him in the Senate dining room, thereby desegregating the Senate dining room. But the Southern segregationists were having none of it. They just gave him the back of their hand in every possible way. And I have to just you know, refer you to um, Robert Caro's book, Master of the Senate in particular, to get some of that background. We're at the end of our time together. The book really is fantastic and I recommend it, but I'm wondering if as a last parting thing, if there's just one thing in particular you really hope people take away or think differently about Humphrey from either reading the book or even just getting to hear you talk about it? Um, I'll just say two quick things. Number one, in the 1940s, there were very few white people who were really committed to civil rights and matched perhaps only by Eleanor Roosevelt, Hubert Humphrey was unparalleled in his commitment and his moral courage. As great as LBJ was, Hubert Humphrey was on this issue 15 years before LBJ. The second thing is that the battle Hubert Humphrey and his allies like Cecil Newman and A. Philip Randolph and Sam Shiner and Eleanor Roosevelt were involved in is the same battle we have before us now. It was the battle of inclusive democracy against forms of autocracy that used terms like white supremacy, Christian nationalism, America first. And the fact that the battle is still going on doesn't mean Humphrey lost, he didn't. It means that in every generation or two, history teaches us progress is met with backlash, and I guess we all have to channel our inner Hubert Humphrey to be ready for it. On that note, a big round of applause. Samuel Friedman, everybody. The book is Into the Bright Sunshine, Young Hubert Humphrey and the Fight for Civil Rights. And thank you all for listening to this special Westminster Town Hall Forum from the Minnesota State Fair. If you enjoyed it, please consider leaving us a rating or review and telling a friend. A reminder that you can hear more than 300 previous Town Hall Forum programs on our website, westminsterforum.org. Our theme music was composed by Kenneth Veen and performed by the Copper Street Brass. Keith Kopatz does audio direction, though this week we had special help from Minnesota Public Radio. Thank you all so much. My name is Tane Danger. Hope that we see you again soon at the Westminster Town Hall Forum.